give you a chance to be looking up the scripture verses this morning. They're all in one place, but there's a lot of them. Be looking up Philippians first chapter, verses 1 through 30. We'll be reading out of the, King, the New International Version. Uh, you'll find it in page 1229 in the uh, Bibles in the pews, or if there's a large print version, that's page 1825. In this first chapter, you'll notice in your hymnals, has inspired at least four songs that are based on some of the words of Paul. And I wanted to point out to you, if, you, if you'll just listen as I read, I know there's a lot of verses, try to catch every time I say the word joy or joyful. Because Paul uses it a lot in the book of Philippians, and you'll be hearing a lot about it and as we go through this letter. Also, he uses the word gospel a lot, the good news. So be listening for those, those two words as, as we read through. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time that I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I have always prayed with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, 
Christ is preached. And because of this I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for Him, since you were going through the same struggle you saw that I had and now hear that I still have. May God bless the reading of His Word. doing this scripture reading thing for a while now and every now and then we run across a a lengthy passage like that and I feel like for me it feels a little bit awkward to read so much scripture at one time I don't know if that's true for you or not I'm not sure some of y'all you know have seen the church for a while because you've lived for a while I'm not going to point out which ones of you that was but but probably uh, through your time you've seen scripture take different roles in the church and, and sometimes more of a role and sometimes less of a role. And I feel like a lot of times in my years growing up and, and in the church, in many of the churches I've seen today, sometimes scripture seems to take kind of a back seat. And I think that in especially the, the uh, early church, much of what they had to go on were letters like these that they would read together. And so, you know, imagine sitting down and reading the whole letter together. We just read one chapter. So, uh, you know, sometimes I think that as we, as we continue to read and focus on Scripture, reading it together, that uh, it will become something we get more used to. 
and, uh, and our attention spans will get more used to it. And who knows, maybe in a few years we'll just read a whole book. So that'd be all right. Uh, we are, though, beginning a new series today, and it's a little bit different from some of the series we've done in the past, because many of the series we've done in the past have been uh, kind of topical, I guess you could say. They've looked at topics like uh, love, or the need for rest, um, they've looked at the Holy Spirit, they've looked at worship, and, uh, but this series, we're just going to do something a little different, we're just going to take a book of the Bible... Uh, And we're going to work our way through it for over the next few weeks. Now, you'll be glad that I didn't choose the book of Psalms, because we might be looking at that for the next few years. But we're just going to take kind of a section at a time for the next few weeks of the book of Philippians. And, you know, this is a book, as you, you just saw it in your Bibles, hopefully. It's found in the New Testament. So in the back part of your Bible. It is... Really, and you know, we say books of the Bible sometimes, and uh, you know, this really originally, as I mentioned earlier, and as as Mike mentioned, this was a letter from the Apostle Paul, who was one of the greatest, if you know, missionaries that the church ever had, one of the first missionaries that the church ever had, and he was single-handedly responsible for taking the gospel to much of the world at that time. Him and those that partnered with him. What they faced, few of us can even begin to fathom as they did that. And much of our New Testament, the stuff that consists of the stories of Jesus and the church after Jesus, is actually consists of letters that he wrote in many cases to churches that he had founded and he would later later write them letters and this book Philippians is no exception this was a letter from the Apostle Paul written to the church he had founded in the city of Philippi and the people who lived there I guess called themselves Philippians (laughs) because they lived in Philippi and so we have this letter and sometimes, you know, we, it's easy for us to forget when we, we, we open our Bible, and this is our Bible, and these are the books of the Bible, and maybe we forget a little bit that once upon a time, this was just a letter. A letter sent from a guy who had founded a church and fathered a church to the children that he, the spiritual children that he had at that church. This is a correspondence. And it was written to a community of believers, not just to one person. And the truths that are contained are certainly pertinent for us today, but it's also important for us to to read it in the light of how it was originally uh, written and communicated and just to, to bear in mind what it is. A letter. And so before we dive into this first chapter, and in the weeks to come, further chapters, I thought it would be worthwhile to just learn a little bit of history about Philippi, and therefore gain a little perspective on the people that the Apostle Paul was writing to. And to do that, we're going to watch a short video by a pastor named Jeff Mannion, who pastors a church called Ada Bible Church. 
and they're very biblically rooted and study a lot of Bible stuff and they have enough money, they send him all over the place with camera crews and they do um, shots. So this that we'll see is him standing in Philippi talking to us about Philippi. And I thought that was kind of neat. So let's watch that together today and hear what he has to say about this ancient city. Philippi. I'm standing in the Roman Forum. And this huge area was paved by these uh, mammoth Roman paving stones. They're about a, a foot thick. Uh, shops would have lined three sides. And this side over here, the north side, that's where the main entranceway was. There were two public fountains. And also in the middle, a uh, speaker's platform called uh, Bema or Tribunal. That's where people accused of uh, various crimes would be tried. Okay, uh, history of Philippi. This place was a settlement until uh, 356 BC when this guy by the name of uh, Philip II of Macedon, that's Alexander the Great's dad, uh, conquers this place because he wants to own the gold and silver mines not far from here. Uh, Philip II built some pretty mammoth fortifications to defend the place. He builds a Greek theater for the purpose of showing Greek plays. And Philip also names the place after himself. Uh, Gives it the name Philippi. So fast forward the tape about 200 years. Now it's 148 BC. The Roman army is on the march. And they sweep through this area and conquer northern Greece. So now Philippi is under the, the Roman umbrella. Uh, next big event, about 100 years after that, 42 B.C. Something happens here that will change the complexion of Philippi drastically. But in order to have that conversation, uh, we're going to climb that hill and continue our conversation up there. Okay, so now we're up the hill. So what happened in 42 BC that affected Philippi so drastically? Okay, far from here to the west, uh, Julius Caesar has been assassinated in Rome. And now there's an armed conflict between two of the conspirators, Brutus and Cassius on one side, uh, against two other guys, Mark Anthony and Octavian, saying, well, who cares? Well, stick with me. The decisive battle between these two groups takes place right down there on the plains of Philippi, just two, three miles from the edge of town. And the conspirators, Brutus and Cassius, are defeated by Mark Anthony and Octavian. Uh, Octavian will end up becoming emperor, and his name will be changed. We know him as Caesar Augustus. Now there's a challenge. Rome is a long way from here. How in the world will Rome put down a revolt, a rebellion that takes place here in northern Greece. Now, here's the solution. You know what Rome needs. They need need an outpost. They need a group of people fiercely, insanely devoted to Rome here in northern Greece. So this is what Octavian does. He takes his entire area, 700 square miles of it, and he declares it a Roman colony. And he gives land to retiring Roman 
soldiers. And so now the chemistry of Philippi changes drastically because it becomes a, a city of Roman veterans who farm the surrounding area. Uh, this, these people and this place becomes intensely, insanely loyal to Rome. I mean, remember that uh, theater built by uh, Philip II of Macedon in order to show Greek plays? Well, somewhere along the line, uh, the Romans removed the first three rows and built a wall. And the reason they did that was because they started using the stage floor for gladiator fights, and the wall was to keep the animals out of the audience. I mean, after all, from a Roman veteran's perspective, why in the world would you want to go to a theater and watch people pretend to kill each other when you can go there and just watch people kill each other? So, uh, one last detail before we return to the forum. Uh, Below us, there is a modern road that cuts right through the archaeological site. But that modern road runs the same line. It's parallel to a strip of the Ignatian Way, that 450-mile road that crossed all of Greece. The Ignatian Way enters Philippi on one end of town and exits Philippi on the other end of town. And uh, it's on the Ignatian Way that Paul, accompanied by Silas and Timothy, enter the city of Philippi. And the wild chain of events that happen here will forge a long and lasting friendship. The wild chain of events. That wild chain of events is not found in the book of Philippians because the book of Philippians is, like I said, a letter from him after he had founded the church there in Philippi. That wild chain of events that he referred to is, can be found, though, in the book of Acts, which is an account of the early church. And in the, cha- in the 16th chapter of Acts, you'll find the story of Paul arriving in Philippi and, and the crazy chain of events that happened. I'm just going to kind of summarize them for you in a nutshell right now, uh, just for time's sake. And if you want to go back and look at it, I would encourage you to read it. Uh, It's it's pertinent to what we're going to be studying here over the next few weeks. That's Acts chapter 16. But see, whenever Paul would, would visit a Greek city like this on his missionary journeys, the first thing he would look for was a Jewish synagogue. Now this might seem a little strange to you, but Paul, the Apostle Paul, was... Uh, had been a Jew of the Jews, you could say. He was, his background was as Jewish as you could get. And he knew the scriptures, he knew the law of Moses as well as anybody. And so it made sense for him to start with the people he was the most comfortable with. And not only that, but Jews already had some background. They already knew about the one true God. And they were already waiting for the Messiah. And so it was an easy starting place for Paul to try to get a foothold in places by just going to a synagogue and beginning by, hey, you know the Messiah we've been waiting for? Let me tell you about him. And so when they got to Philippi, we read that he didn't go to a synagogue. And it says that they didn't have one. And this is kind of unusual as you read about Paul's journeys. But from what I've read from scholars, you had to have in that day a certain number of Jewish 
men in a community before you could have a synagogue. You had to have a certain number of heads of households that represented family units before you could have a synagogue. And the number was ten. So they must not have had ten heads of household in Philippi to be able to have a synagogue. And in fact, when Paul does find a group of Jews, he finds them beside a river outside of Philippi. And he went and he looked there. And that might seem strange too. Why would you just go wandering down the riverside looking for someone Jewish like you? (laughs) But from what we understand, that was a common practice. If they did not have a synagogue, they looked for a river or something like that, that they could find a plot of land and worship there. Because that made it a lot easier for some of the cleansing rituals and things, religious things they had to do. They had water right there for those purposes. And so they go and they look and they find a group of women praying beside the river. And the fact that it describes them as a group of women further confirms that they probably didn't have enough guys, Jewish guys, to constitute a synagogue in that community. And why there were only references to women at the riverside, maybe their men were occupied doing something else, Uh, maybe they were involved with the military somehow as it was an outpost there, we don't know. But what we do know is they show up with the good news about Jesus Christ, and at least one woman named Lydia is converted in her household, and she invites them to stay with her. And they continue to meet with the Jewish people and to try and spread the gospel in this city of Philippi. Now as they're staying there, a demon-possessed girl who has been enslaved and is being used as a fortune teller. I told you it's a wild chain of events, right? (laughs) She finds them and starts following them around and she starts shouting out that, listen to these guys... These guys are from the Most High God and they're telling you the way to be saved. Now that sounds like positive publicity, right? But for some reason it annoyed Paul to death. And it may have been that maybe he didn't want that broadcasted out in a Roman area where he was probably going to get unwanted attention. He had a strategy in mind, no doubt, and this girl seemed to be messing with it because after a while he said, enough is enough. And he turned around in the the name of Jesus, cast the demon out of her. Now, yay, yay, sis, boom, bah, one for the kingdom. Except her owners, the people who were making all the money off of using her fortune-telling skills, weren't so thrilled about this new development. And so they drag Paul and Silas, who was with Paul at the time, off and they beat them and they put them in prison. And this is where we get the famous story of Paul and Silas in prison singing and praying as they're in chains for the gospel and suddenly the prison is shaken and their chains fall off and the jailer who was taking a nap wakes up and thinks oh my and he's about to take his own life because whatever they were going to do to him for messing this up was going to be worse than that and so In that moment, Paul shouts out, don't do it. (laughs) Don't jump. And he says, we're all here. And they proceed to lead this jailer to Jesus and his household. But this kind of marked the end of their time there. They 
they pointed out to the officials that, hey, you just beat and imprisoned Roman citizens. And, you know, they got kind of antsy about that. But the city asked them to leave. They weren't pleased with the trouble they were causing. They asked them to leave, and they did. But they clearly left behind the beginnings of a church. They left behind believers that then went on growing in their faith. And the reason that we know that they went on growing in their faith is this letter, Philippians. In contrast to the other letters that Paul wrote that you'll read about, Philippians has a different tone. And maybe that's why it's been one of my favorite books of the Bible for as long as I can remember. It has a different tone because instead of being written in reaction to some bad news that Paul had received, where he had to then write a letter of correction, this seems to have just been written out of good news and out of joy. As Mike mentioned earlier, joy. Not written to correct misdirection, but instead written to praise faithfulness. And in this opening chapter that we read today, Paul just does kind of what anyone would do in an opening of a letter. They'd share a little bit about what's going on in their life and talk a little bit about the person that they're writing to. And so he shares how he's in chains for the gospel. This would have been one of the times that he was locked up in Rome under kind of a house arrest. And he was in chains for the gospel yet again. And he was writing to them from that place. But he also praised their faithfulness and he told them about what he prays when he thinks of them. That their love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that they may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is what he said he prayed for them. And in the process of this greeting that takes place in the first chapter of Philippians, we find that he also reveals a radical focus on the gospel. He says things like, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. He says, What has happened to me, his being in chains, has really served to advance the gospel. He says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And these are just a few examples. He mentions the word gospel seven times spread throughout this first chapter. So that, to some degree, the gospel occupies this entire chapter. Everything that he writes has something to do with it in some way, shape, or form, it seems. And what is the gospel? The answer to that probably deserves its own message, its own series, and we'll probably get there sooner than later. But for now, let's just suffice it to say that gospel was not a religious term when Paul used it. Like it is for us today. When we hear about the gospel, we think all sorts of things. We think of Billy Graham. We think of gospel tracts. We think of gospel presentations. But in that day, it was a secular term. Commonly used. 
And oftentimes it had to do with just good news reports from, in his day, the Roman military. What was Caesar up to? What was he doing? What was the Roman army doing? What, who were they conquering? What good news was there? What gospel was there about what Rome was up to? And so, similarly, the gospel of Christ was the telling of the feats of Christ. It was about his conquering of death, about his resurrection, about his sacrifice for our sins. The gospel was not just a tract, it was not just some set of theology or or you know, a neat way of presenting the gospel message through the four spiritual laws or the Roman way or the different things that we've come up with that we've all called the gospel. It was not just a group of theological concepts. It was a story. It was the telling, the heralding of the coming and doings and conquerings of this man, this God-man, Jesus Christ. And we'll see a glimpse next week. We might just cheat a little bit right now and, and look a little bit at chapter 2, which we'll get to next week. Because in chapter 2, Paul actually offers a nutshell gospel. And this is what he writes about Christ Jesus. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The gospel is a narrative. That's a short, shortened version that the early church used. It may have even been a hymn that they sang, a way to memorize what the gospel was in a nutshell. But the gospel in its fuller entirety is found in the four books that we call the gospels. The gospel of Matthew, the gospel of Mark, the gospel of Luke, the gospel of John, that begin the New Testament. And they tell the story of Jesus from beginning all the way through to his resurrection. And this makes up the gospel. That's what the gospel is. It's the good news about what Jesus did and is up to. And this is what he's talking about. And the gospel is it's not just a story. It's the most powerful story the world has ever heard. It's The proclamation of news that has the power to change your life, to change my life, to change, in fact, the world, to change everything. And it's this gospel that the Apostle Paul places such a radical priority on in this first chapter of Philippians. Let's look at some of what he says about it, and along the way you can fill in blanks on your note cards if you'd like. As Mike pointed out earlier, much of this chapter deals with joy. And the first thing we'll say is that the gospel should bring joy when it's in 
correct priority for us. The Apostle Paul, it was, the gospel was such a priority for him that this was his greatest source of joy. That He said it in verse 5 that he was given joy by the fact that the Philippians, the, the church in Philippi, was partnering with him in the gospel. And this was a source of joy for him. We also read that the gospel is worth suffering. It's worth suffering for. Paul actually expresses that he is pleased that his being in chains has led to the gospel being advanced. He didn't say he was pleased to be in chains, but he was pleased that his being in chains had led to a good result. And those results included that everyone in the palace guard that were watching over him now knew about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And not only that, but other believers were being emboldened to speak out about their faith by the fact that Paul was in chains and still serving boldly. Not only that, but at the end of his letter, Paul asks the Philippians, around verse 27 and 28, to keep striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. In other words, he was saying, it's worth suffering for. Because he said that these these people, these dear people whom he loved in the church in Philippi were dealing with the same kind of suffering that he had dealt with. No doubt the other citizens in Philippi hadn't gotten any friendlier since Paul had left and been driven out. And those citizens of Philippi that chose to continue their life there and to continue building the church there and spreading the kingdom there, they no doubt had to deal with their own share of sufferings. And Paul said, don't be frightened by those who oppose you, but continue to stand firm in your faith of the gospel, striving together. The gospel warrants setting aside pride. What might otherwise cause offense or anger is of no consequence if the gospel is being advanced. That's the priority that Paul gave the gospel. In fact, when they, in response to the fact that he had been told people were out there and they were preaching the gospel in such a way as to somehow put down Paul. From a motive of putting down Paul, we don't know exactly what that looked like, but in some way or another, they were presenting the gospel to further their, promote their own self and their own gain and to diminish Paul. And he says, what does it matter? What does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. So the gospel warrants setting aside pride. And the last thing we'll say about this gospel priority that Paul describes is that it's bigger than life and death. At one point we read that Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ, to die is gain. 
The gospel is of such importance to Paul that he's willing to place his life in the balance. And if, if God would prefer him to die, then hey, that's his gain. He can be with Christ. And if he wants him to stay, then so be it. And he can continue striving for the gospel here on earth. And he's willing to place his life in the balance. He's prepared to do whatever needs to be done. What about our priorities? For the Apostle Paul, the gospel was the priority. And I think for many of us in the church today, the gospel has become a priority. One priority of many. There's lots of things we have going on. Lots of stuff in our lives. Lots of stuff going on in our churches that are all worthwhile things, but sometimes our priorities get a little crowded. And even good things, if placed as a higher priority than the most important things, can get in the way. Love of family, love of country, love of church. The priorities of providing for our families, of furthering our careers, of having a little fun along the way. All these things can overtake the priority of the gospel. And I'm not saying that you should just abandon your family and head off for the gospel. And I don't think Paul would tell you that either from the things that he wrote. In fact, it would be alright to point out that Paul didn't have a wife and kids. And probably made it a little bit easier. In fact, he confessed that it made it easier to put his life on the line and things like that. But, we can also place our families up on a pedestal sometimes that's a little too high. And we can worship our families instead of worshiping our God if we're not careful. And the gospel should certainly rank high in our priorities. And so the question, the final blanks on your sheet today, how high does the gospel rank in my priorities? If the gospel was the priority for our church, how would that affect what we choose to spend money on? How would it affect the ministries that we choose to do, the programs, the events that we plan, and the things that we don't plan? Or that we stop doing. If the gospel was the priority for your life, how would that affect what you spend money on or what you spend time doing? How would it affect the way you treat your coworkers or the way you interact with your family? How would the gospel being the main priority affect how often you bring up? Jesus in conversations outside of church? Would it change the way that you view ordinary everyday encounters? Would it change the way you view people that annoy the mess out of you? Because <laughs> you know that those people are around. If the gospel was the priority though, how would you view those people? Even how would you maybe interpret the evening news differently than the way you do if the gospel was the priority? 
Church, the gospel changes everything. It changed my life. It changed many of your lives. It's changed our world. And it's still changing the world today. Amen? And you and I, we can either be a part of that and make the gospel a priority or we can miss out. So I want to challenge you in the aftermath of this message that, uh, that we've shared and we've looked at Philippians, this first chapter, to consider your priorities in a fresh light. Maybe even write them down. Make a list. What are the things, a good way to start is, what are the things we invest the most time and money into? Because oftentimes our time and our money are the best true indicators of where we place our priorities. So maybe take inventory this week. Consider what your priorities have been and consider how some of that distribution of time and money and the things you invest yourself in might change if the gospel moved up your priorities list. Then spend some time praying, as we will in just a moment, about how the gospel can grow and you and I can decrease. I also want to leave you an assignment this week, and this will be our assignment running through this series. So if you want no more homework assignments, don't come back next week. But we will, uh, I'd like you just to participate in this series by reading through Philippians a lot. And what I'd like to ask you to do this week is we just looked at chapter 1, and we talked about a lot about chapter 1. We unpacked a whole chapter here in just a little bit of time. And so take chapter 1 and each morning or each evening or both, whatever floats your boat. Read through chapter 1 at least once each day until we get to next Sunday. And then we'll look at chapter 2. That may seem kind of repetitive. And I remember the first time when I went to a Christian university in my freshman year, I had a professor that made us read a book like a bunch of times in a row. He said, just sit down and read it several times a day. The same passage. I was like, are you kidding me? And yet I found from that experience that if you approach Scripture, and each day when you come back to that chapter, you, you pray, God, speak to me through your word. You will not be disappointed. And in fact, as you walk through that each day, you'll see things you didn't pick up on the day before. And God will speak to you in fresh ways. And as we said, there's a lot to unpack in this chapter. So just take the rest of this week, until we meet again, to read through repetitively Philippians chapter 1, asking God to speak to you through His Word. Asking the Holy Spirit to speak to you through His Word. He may even point something out to you specifically, something small that you can then take and, and, as we say, meditate on it or just think about it as you go through your day and try to apply God's Word. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, 
We thank you for your gospel. We thank you for the good news. We thank you, Lord, that you've entrusted us to us, your children, your people, your church, the kind of news that changes everything, that changes the world. And Lord, help us to make your gospel the priority that it deserves to be in our own lives and certainly in your church. May we be intent on proclaiming the gospel because it will continue, God, to change our own lives. And it certainly has the power to change the lives of those who don't know you yet. So we pray you'd help us, Holy Spirit. Help us make the gospel a greater priority. We pray it in your name. Amen.